It's time to outlive your cubicle, the podcast that helps you get the most out of your health when you spend your day at a desk. Remember, this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. Nothing in our discussion should be construed as medical advice or diagnosis. If you plan to make health changes, be sure to ask your doctor. Now, here's your host, Dan Wool. Welcome back, everybody. Episode four of Outlive Your Cubicle. I'm your host, Wool, comma, Dan. Glad to have you back. I know it's been a few weeks since I've had the pot out, but I've been saving this one for a little while. Today's guest is my friend Jamil Sayish. He's also my classmate at Southwest College of Naturopathic Medicine. Jamil is a transformational life coach. You can find him on Instagram at the Life Doc. He's also the author of a new ebook called 20 Steps to Your Next Breakthrough. And I can tell you from being friends with Jamil over the past four years that this guy is a true healer. He's really adept at kind of reaching into your soul and ripping out that one obstacle that is keeping you from getting your life underway in a way that you never thought was possible. He went to Fordham University. He comes from a family of physicians. And after a couple years of working in the family practice and urgent care as an assistant, he decided to pursue a degree in naturopathic medicine. When he's not with his patients, Jamil is spending his time motivating, empowering, and inspiring others to take responsibility and action in their lives. For more than a decade, his enthusiasm and thirst for knowledge have led him to conquer his own health concerns and help others regain their vitality. In his coaching practice, he helps clients transform their lives in four key areas, and he gets into this on the podcast, health, relationships, success, and fulfillment. I have to tell you, Jamil's positivity is contagious, his compassion is sincere, and his willingness to help knows no bounds. Now, a few things about the recording of this podcast. We did it at the beginning of March, so there's a couple time references in there that here at the end of May may sound a little odd. Not too bad, I hope. Second, Jamil leads us in a breathing exercise at the end of the podcast. It's designed to relieve stress. It is not designed to have you crash your car. It requires you to have your hands on your belly, and I really encourage you to go through it. I just really encourage you to go through it while you're parked safely at the side of the road or laying in your bed or in a relaxed environment at home. That's it. Please enjoy my conversation with my friend, Jamil Saj. Here with Jamil Sayaj. Welcome to the show. Hey, Dan. Thanks for having me today. Great to have you. Jamil is a life coach. Tell me a little more about that. Thanks, Dan. Of course. Yeah. So a little bit about what I do. I work with people in four key areas of life that I like to focus on. Their health, their relationships, their success, and their fulfillment. And specifically, first there's the health component. And I look at that from a body, mind, spirit, full body component. Next, there's the relationship component with yourself and with others, because far too often we don't have that level of self-love, self-appreciation, and self-acceptance, and that trickles down into our other relationships, whether they be intimate, business, personal, whatever you're thinking of, and it can ruin those. There's that old expression, if you don't love yourself, it's hard to love somebody else. Mm -hmm. So helping people in that regard. Then there's the component of success because everyone defines success differently. And what would, what would make one person successful, another person would be miserable in that same case. There's plenty of millionaires and billionaires who are absolutely miserable. And there's three quarters of the planet that live on less than $2.50 a day. 
that are some of the happiest people you'd ever meet. So getting people absolutely clear on what is it they want, what they're going after, so that they can actually get it. Because I find that far too often people live other people's version of their own life instead of where, they, where their heart is, what they really want to do. And finally, there's fulfillment. Because my ultimate goal is how do I get somebody to a point where at the end of their life, they're 90, 100 years old, looking back, and they'd say, if I could do it all over again, I wouldn't change a thing. Because without that, that success component, without that level of fulfillment, you're going to be living a life of failure. I think success is a good thing to unpack. A lot of people look at their lives and they think that they need to be at a certain level and that we have a lot that is defined by society as, oh, you need to, success is this or success is that or you need to do this and you need to do that. In your work with people, what do you find? I find that for the most part, far too often people judge themselves and their expectations of themselves based on what the people around them are doing and not necessarily on what their heart's telling them that they need to be doing. Most of the people that I work with, friends of mine, family, these are people that they look around and they see what other people want, what other people have, and they say, well, that's what it takes to be happy, so let me go after that. And the biggest problem I see people run into is they have this mentality of when I get that thing, when I, when I achieve that next level, then I'll be happy. When I make that X amount of money, then I'll be happy. When I have X amount of followers on social media, then I'll finally be happy. Right. But what ends up happening is you get to that point and then you're still not happy. There's a momentary joy, which is fleeting. And then all of a sudden now you have to set the bar even higher. And then it's this never-ending chase of happiness because people aren't getting that happiness comes first and the success follows that. So how do we set the bar for continuous joy? I'd say the first thing is you have to have that level of self-awareness. You have to know what it is that makes you light up. What makes your soul just, there's that old expression, light your soul on fire and people come from miles around to watch you burn. And it's such a powerful statement because when you can see somebody living their joy, their truth, they're not trying. There's no effort. They're just living and yet they're getting unbelievable results and they're completely at peace with themselves. So for me, that joy is predicated on the fact that you're doing what you know you need to be doing. I know you live a lot with a lot of joy and you're doing what you feel like you need to be doing. but. Where did this all begin for you? Where did you get started? And what was the moment all changed for you? Yeah, so it actually started, I was an athlete when I was growing up, 14 years old. I started doing a track and field of 800 meter runner and I was pretty bad. <laughs> and so I was also fairly sick physically. And every week I had this yearly cold, I called it. You know, I'd be the kid walking around school with rolls of toilet paper. <laughs> and, you know, and... I'd always have the, the headache, the congestion, the runny nose, and then my track times were completely horrible. And I started to wonder, you know, it can't just be me. Like, what's going on? Is it maybe, maybe it's my diet. And my diet was arguably the worst I've seen <laughs> to this point, even working with patients. And so started making some changes. And all of a sudden I started to notice wasn't getting sick as much. Track times and performances started dramatically improving. And then I started looking into the mental emotional component of it. I, I got into it just as simply as going on YouTube and looking up motivational videos and slowly but surely like reprogramming the way that I thought. And 
after a while, that just became my default setting. That became how I thought about everything. And then, you know, fast forward four or five years of that, it just became me. We're both in naturopathic school. We're both yeah. about to graduate, which is pretty exciting. Four months and counting. Four months and counting. Not that we are, but uh, okay, we are. <laughs> but what was your journey to get to naturopathic medicine? Yeah, so it's actually very interesting. I want to first say that there's that old quote by Zig Ziglar that people say motivation doesn't last and neither does bathing. And that's why we recommend it daily. <laughs> and so a lot of people think they have a negative connotation to motivation and they think that, oh, you know, it's just rah, rah. And then you just kind of crash two, three days later. I, when I say motivation, I don't mean I just pump myself up with this right. like fake high. It's more of I understood what was, my, what was important to me and I understood where I wanted to be. But then I also understood the difference between a belief and actual reality. And all the things in my life that were holding me back were stemming from the fact that I had limiting beliefs, things that were holding me back from seeing life how it actually was. And once I saw through that, that level of clarity brought immense joy with it. And when you work with friends and family and clients and other, other people who come to you, what are the most common limiting beliefs that people believe that you know, or holding them back or excuses, if you were, that you hear that, um, you know, I always no, I do this, I do that. What are the most common things that you hear all the time? Well, what the most common is anything you follow the words I can't with. <laughs> yep. And a lot of people feel that their limiting beliefs are the truth. And that's the biggest thing because people will say, I can't do X or people are supposed to do Y or he or she shouldn't have done this. But the reason isn't a solid fact. It's not an aspect of reality. It's just real for them. It's this belief they grew up with that this is what they're capable of. This is the story they've been repeating in their mind over and over again. And they just solidify it as fact. And so once you can switch that over to realizing, hmm, is this actually true? Or am I, am I just convincing myself that it's the case? Night and day difference. And how do we become mindful of that on a kind of a day-to-day and even on a moment-to-moment -moment basis? There's so many people who are kind of on a treadmill. They wake up, they go to work, they come home, repeat, and it's, it's hard. And then they stop to, to think about these things. And it's like then they, the depression sets in or the excuses set in or, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that tomorrow or do that uh, next year instead of right this minute. What are the things that we can do to be more mindful on more of a moment-to-moment -moment basis start to move the needle a little bit? So there's a couple of things there, actually, just to unpack it. You know, one component of it is that idea of reminders. Far too often, we have all these amazing ideas, things we want to do, and we might write them down, we might not, and we'll say, I'll get to that. And we all see it, things pile up, and then life takes over, and we never do it. Mm -hmm. So one simple thing you can do right now is set reminders. I like to put them on my phone. Something as simple as you open up the reminder app if you have, I have an iPhone, that or a calendar app, and you can just put in every two, three hours something that you want to pop up. It'll, it comes up like a text message, and it just reminds you of either something you have to do, a way you want to think, something you want to remind yourself of. So you, maybe you did a great job with something, and you want to just put yourself back into that state. So just the reminding aspect is so crucial. Then after that, first there's the component of when you feel a certain way, acknowledging that you feel it and actually feeling it first. Because what a lot of people do is they judge themselves for feeling however they feel, and they say, I shouldn't be feeling this way, and then they get frustrated. 
And then that ends up taking them further down that, let's say they're frustrated, it takes them further down that hole of frustration. So first you have to just acknowledge what you're feeling, understand where it's coming from, and then reframe it. Start to think, well, what's good about this? How could I use this to get where I want to be anyway? What's the gift this is giving me? So for example, let's say you're really angry because somebody did something to you and they made you very upset. But you've also been wanting to be more patient with people and you've also wanted to be more mindful. Well, in order to do that, you need some practice. <laughs> and so they're giving you that opportunity. They're giving you that gift. Just being able to live your life without getting worked up because you've done the work on yourself first. What are the mental emotional components of naturopathic medicine that you enjoy and that draws you deeper into the, into the medicine? Oh, yeah. So there's that first component of something as simple as, as you think, so you are. You know, yeah. James Allen said that it's in the Bible. The Buddha said that it goes a long way. I didn't yeah. make it up. <laughs> and it's such a crucial aspect. You know, there's there's something called the placebo effect and it's something called the nocebo effect. And that was in the New England Journal of Medicine not too long ago. And it's just this idea that, you know, there's the placebo effect, which most of your listeners have probably heard of. Something as simple as I give you this sugar pill and I tell you it's going to cure your arthritis. You take it, your arthritis goes away. And it was not because of the pill because nothing was in it. It was because you believed it would go away mm -hmm. and your body is that powerful. The nocebo effect is the opposite. Doctor tells you you have three months to live. You believe him or her and you die in three months. And it's not necessarily because of the condition. It's because you lost that will to live. You gave up on that. And so taking things like that into account, understanding how important your thoughts are to your life. You know, Bruce Lipton, he wrote the book called The Biology of Belief. Mm -hmm. And he calls the brain the master chemist. Because the moment you think a thought, it changes the, the, uh, the biochemistry in your brain. All of a sudden, you, if you start thinking thoughts of love, you start thinking things of gratitude, you flood your body with anti-inflammatory chemicals. You start flooding your body with those feel-good hormones people talk about, the dopamines and the oxytocins and the serotonins. These are like natural antidepressants, thinking like that. But then if you start thinking about stressful thoughts, and you might think, well, it's just a thought. You're now flooding your body with, with, us, with um, adrenaline and norepinephrine, and you start throwing in cortisol. Now you're going to raise the weight in your body, and you're going to really cause inflammation to skyrocket, increase all your pains. And it's just that powerful that as you think, so you are. And so with the people that I've been working with, the patients, the clients, getting that mental game down so that they're not making whatever they're going through even worse. Because it's one thing to say, hey, I'm 60 pounds overweight. Hey, I have diabetes. Hey, you know, my mom is sick. All those things, that's one aspect of it. But then there's, now what does that mean to you? What's, what state is that creating in you? Because me just saying I'm 60 pounds overweight, that's a black and white thing. There's no gray area there. Now, how I feel about that is going to determine if I stay there, if it becomes worse. If somebody's sick in my family, well, I can take that as an opportunity to help them get better. And if I can't help them get better in terms of reversing the condition, I can help them get better in terms of my presence with them, how I make them feel, how my relationship with them improves so that I feel like I have no regrets if anything were to happen. But all of a sudden, if mentally I bring myself down, I start thinking about the worst case scenario not only do I not get that opportunity to deepen that relationship, to get the results with the weight or whatever I'm working on, I'm going to feel worse along the way. And so with the patients that I've seen, 
the best docs that I know are the ones who have that bedside manner that make the patient feel not only cared for, but deeply understood. And they make them feel human. They make them feel loved. And all it's not just a, a robot. And I find that in medicine, far too often, medicine's becoming very conveyor beltish. You come in, mm-hmm. we treat you for whatever you have, you leave, we bill you, and that's it. There's no heart anymore. The art of medicine, in a sense, isn't there. So with that mental-emotional component, when the patient becomes family, when the client becomes family, you're there soul to soul trying to connect with them. And that is where I see the greatest healing happen. I think that the number one condition that we see in our clinics are related to stress. I've heard the World Health Organization say, I think it's 75 or 80% of disease is linked to stress. Yeah. And at the same time, now there are, you know, people certainly out there have traumas in their life. Uh, there, there are some very powerful stressors that happen to all of us throughout our lifetime, but stress is also a matter of perception. Yeah. So one thing to comment on that, to me, it's a very interesting thing with stress. And the reason is that most people walk around thinking that stress is an inevitable aspect of life. But the thing is that it's not. Going back to, we talked about limiting beliefs. Stress doesn't exist in and of itself. Stress is not a thing. You don't say, that's a lamp, that's a book, that's stress. (laughs) Stress is a response to a situation. And you have complete control over your response all the time. There's a difference between reaction and response. Reaction is that instant thing that happens when somebody gets you angry and you flip. <laughs> but responding is that, that pause, that half second pause where you say, how do I want to show up right now? How do I want to interpret this? Because I remember growing up, my mom used to always tell me, you can't control what happens to you, but you always can control what things mean to you. What are you going to do about it? So when people talk about stress, there's this idea that, oh yeah, there's stressful situations. But that's that situation that you're in that you believe is just mind-crushing, completely stressful, somebody else is in that same situation and they're doing all right with it. And vice versa, you're doing great in certain aspects of your life that other people are cracking under the pressure, which means it's got nothing to do with the thing and it's got everything to do with you. When you can put yourself in a state where you can handle it, all of a sudden, think of like a rubber band actually, you can stretch it and the more you stretch it, as long as it's a you know, great rubber band, it'll bounce back. But if it's a bit old and it's brittle and you stretch it, it cracks. So do what you can in a sense to make your mind flexible to the point where you don't crack under that pressure. You can handle whatever weight comes your way. A lot of times we are so programmed and so wired for stress these days. It comes at us from so many different angles that it's hard to know where to be. Our default level oftentimes is at a, a stressful level. So where do you start to break those cycles? Yes. Yeah, so talking about that default level and the cycles that you're hitting on, there's a whole component in neuroscience called neuroplasticity. And for anyone who doesn't know, just think of it as we used to believe in science that your brain didn't change. You know, once you were 20, 25 years old, your brain stopped growing and all of a sudden that's the brain you have for the rest of your life and you're stuck with it. But we're learning now that every thought that you think changes your brain. You know, the gray matter in your brain, it's a a component of the brain tissue. There's studies done by Harvard that show that it will grow, let's say in their example, using meditation. 
but just every thought that you think shifts and molds the brain and the way that you think is gonna determine who you become, talking about the brain being that master chemist. So what I would start by saying, how do, where do we start? We start by acknowledging where we're at and far too often we're in denial. So I'd say we start by focusing on where is our thought process where is it? Because focus equals reality and focus equals feeling, as Tony Robbins puts it. And this idea that wherever you put your mind is what you're going to feel. So ask yourself, what are the questions that I'm asking myself? Because when you're stressed out, you typically are asking, why is this happening to me? Why is there so many things I have on my plate to work on? Why did he didn't? How come he didn't take the garbage out this time? How come she let me down again? We've all, why is my boss like this? We always have all these questions and it's always in more of a negative context because the brain is gonna answer any question you give it. So if you say, why does this always happen to me? Your brain's gonna give you an answer and it's not gonna be an answer that's very empowering. But if you start changing the focus on what's great about this? What am I grateful for in my life right now? What am I excited about that's coming? What's going well for me right now? All of a sudden, you start to ask better questions, you're gonna get better answers. And when you, when you get those better answers, it's gonna change the state that you're in. By changing the state you're in to a more resourceful state, a state of playfulness, a state of curiosity, a state of being receptive and open to whatever's coming your way, you respond differently to life. One of the things that was a big stressor back when I was in corporate life is this notion of personal versus professional and how to separate them. So for instance, you have an interaction with a boss. It's not going in the direction that you wanted it to go in. Maybe I, I, you know, I can think of a, a time when I had a project, uh, I presented it, and a couple things that I really felt strongly for got thrown out and I had to start over again at the drawing board. That is a professional decision on the part of that manager. However, to me, it's personal. I put my heart and soul into this presentation and they're throwing out the parts that I really thought were like going to be the greatest parts. And it's all kind of a hypothetical as to say, but you know, we live in the corporate world and in the work world. And, and a lot of times in our personal world, there is this, we have to be professional yet. Some of our professional setbacks are also personal setbacks. So how do you keep from taking things so personally? That's really interesting too. I find that like something that you mentioned, when a professional aspect of your life then becomes a personal aspect. In your example, you know, your idea that your heart was in got turned down or an aspect of it was altered and all of a sudden it was like, you know, you took the insult. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like going on a it's almost like going on a date and getting rejected sometimes. Uh, I mean, it can rise to that level certain people with work. Yeah. So it, it's that's personal. Yeah. How is it, you know, and it's a professional setback. How is that different emotionally and how do we, how do we attack it? Yes. I think that far too often we confuse what we love with what we, what we're attached to. And what I mean by that is you have, you have a project that you're working on and you love it from the perspective that your heart and soul went into this and that you enjoyed every moment of it. That's one thing. The attachment aspect comes in when you now present this with this idea that this is the greatest thing in the world and other people don't think so or they don't think of it as highly you know as we do and then we take it personally because this be, this has become our baby essentially right 
And so for me, there's first this component of at work, you're part of a team. And by being part of a team, there's this component of I'm going to contribute something. He's going to contribute something. She's going to contribute something. And together, we're going to figure out what's best for the team. And so all we can do as individuals is communicate what's on our heart, what's on our minds as clearly as possible. Hey, guys, this is what I'm feeling. This is what I think is the best direction we can go in. This is the best product, the best presentation, whatever it is that I think we can pump out. What do you think? And be open to hearing some different feedback because no one's going to care as much as w about what you make as you. <laughs> but I think that by separating ourselves from whatever we make, from just enjoying the process of making it because we gave it our all, but not being attached to the outcome of how it gets used, that's going to save a lot of pain, I think. And we also take things personally because we, we typically look at it as, well, I made this and you're rejecting it. So by rejecting it, you're rejecting me. What I'm hearing from you is that you think communication is the key. What are some ideas around that? Well, I definitely think communication is crucial in any relationship, whether it be, in this case, corporate, personal, uh, intimate, whatever it is. Far too often we get frustrated because we know what we mean or we know what we feel, but we don't communicate it because we have a fear that it's not the right place, not the right time. We have a fear of being seen. We have a fear of really being heard deep down because we think that if I actually say this, I might get in trouble, you know, something to that extent. But to me, I find that if, as long as you do it respectfully, there's a way that to handle it where you're at complete peace regardless of how it goes because you spoke what was on your mind, what was on your heart, as I said before. Like, for example, you have somebody working in a corporation and, you know, they want to really commit to this company. So what stops them from going to their boss and saying, hey, I'd love some more responsibility because... I really believe in what we're doing here and I want to do everything I can to push this forward because that way of thinking is what's going to get them that promotion that they deeply want. But you don't just ask for the promotion because you haven't done anything yet. You have to take on that extra responsibility first. But that starts with you going up to your boss and asking for it. But we don't because we think that what if they say no? If they say no, you're in the same boat you're in now. Like there's no, there's no downside. I heard a great quote. It was, uh, I forget who it was by, but it, it was, if you never ask, the answer is always no. Yes, exactly. Um, but it comes back down to, you know, the self-esteem to ask and being in the right frame of mind, doesn't it? Yeah, if you, what you just hit on it perfectly. I want anyone listening to this to think back to anything in their life that was absolutely wonderful. It, this could be a, an intimate relationship. This could be an experience that you had, a person that you met, whatever it is. And then fast forward to where you're at right now and let's say you're still with that person or that experience brought you all this tremendous joy. You decided to move somewhere and now your life has been a dream ever since you moved there. Whatever it was, it all started from that decision to put yourself out there. It all started from that decision to say hello. It all started from that decision to say, well, what if they say no? Well, what if they say yes? That's a much better question. And then you go out there and you give it that shot and everything changes. How do you stop and take responsibility and start to even things out and make any changes? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head with that one word right there, responsibility. I find that what far too many people do that serves as a massive deterrent in their life from experiencing that stress-free, that happiness, that joy, is they don't take full responsibility. And what I mean by that 
is you need to take 100% responsibility in every aspect of your life when you can say to yourself, everything is my fault. Everything that I feel is on me because everything that I feel is coming from me. It's based on my responding to a situation, to a person. People like to say, oh, Joe did this and that made me feel upset. No, Joe did this, period. You feel upset. It's not on Joe, it's on you. Oh, you know, I was at, I was at work and Mary did that and that made me feel upset. No, Mary did that, period. It's got nothing to do with you being upset. You chose to respond in an upset way. It triggered you. And what I mean by that, it's not that what other people does, you know, it doesn't matter. It's more along the lines of you need to take responsibility for everything that you feel because once you do that, you take back your control. Once you do that, you live in life on your terms opposed to if Mike does something to me and I get upset, I have to wait for Mike to stop doing it in order for me to not be upset anymore. But what if Mike keeps doing it? Well, that means that I'm going to remain stressed and upset. Or I can take that power back and go, you know, I'm going to choose not to feed into this. I'm going to choose to think differently. I'm going to choose to take that power back. Because responsibility, break the word up. It's responsibility. It's the ability to respond. So how do we communicate to somebody who's doing that on a regular basis? There's two, a couple ways to do this. Now, first thing we have to consider is what that relationship is to that person. Sometimes it's a person that if you're fortunate, you can just stop being around. You can stop, stop spending time with. That would be like an ideal situation if you couldn't reach a state of peace with them. Now, if it's someone that you're working with, though, maybe they lit, they're in the cubicle right next to you and you're not able to get away from them. At that point, all you can do is get your own thoughts together, get your feelings together, figure out exactly what you feel. Go up to that person and say, hey, can, we, can, I, can I speak with you? And when they say, yeah, what's up? You tell them exactly what you're feeling, but you don't come at it from a me versus you perspective. It's not, you did all this and that made me feel that. Because that's just going to make them defensive. What far too often happens is, you know, <laughs> you say something to the extent of, hey, Dan, you know, you messed up and because you did that, I'm feeling, I'm feeling upset. Well, now you're going to defend why you didn't mess up, and then we're going to get into an argument. And that happens far too often. Instead, it's going to be more of, you know, you focus on the great qualities of that person. You focus on the fact that you're working together. You're going to see them a lot, and you want to make this environment the healthiest environment possible, the most productive environment possible, the most creative environment possible. Figure out what they're all about. Let them know that they said a couple things that you know, really bothered you. Or they do something that does bother you and you, you'd like to see if we can work that out together. I think that most people also, when confronted with that sort of situation, my experience, they're like mortified. They had no idea. Oh, yeah. That they walk around. You walk around thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm going to walk around with a lot of anxiety to have that conversation. But a lot of times people are open to the feedback and they're, they're mortified that they even did something to offend you. Well, there's that old... Uh, you know, expression is don't make assumptions. It makes an ass out of you and me, Absolutely. right? <laughs> and it's so true because as you hit on, far too often what we think that is going on is far from the truth of what's actually going on. We get all stressed and worked up in our own mind thinking that if we approach somebody, they're going to be really upset with us because we're, we're going to call them out on something, let's say. Meanwhile, they don't even know that what they're doing is bothering us. And if we were to speak up about it, they'd be like, oh, yeah, no problem. I'll stop. 
but we blow it out of proportion so we never do it. And then what if we do actually do it, we're dreading it the entire time. Right. Or if we don't do it, we kick it down the road, things keep happening again and again and again, and it magnifies the problem. Oh, and that happens in relationships all the time. In a relationship, somebody will do something. Think about it from this perspective in a relationship. Have you, if you've ever gotten angry with somebody to the point where you yelled, to the point where you really had a little explosion, did that thing just happen for the first time and you responded like that? No. What typically happens is it's been going on for a long time and it bothered you initially, but you didn't say anything. Then it happened again. And now it really started to irritate you and you didn't say anything. And it kept growing and growing and festering and building on itself until one day it was so much that you exploded and yelled at this person. And now that person's looking at you with a state of confusion of where did that come from? You know, if you didn't like me doing it, why didn't you say something? And it's a very obviously logical thing. Why didn't I say something? And it's like, you know, I didn't want to hurt your feelings. I didn't think you'd understand whatever it was. But just communicating what, what's going on in you when it's a little bit of a flame, opposed like a little spark, <laughs> opposed to waiting until you have an inferno going on to deal with it. We were talking about stress earlier. And it's really important to do things away from the office and do things to relieve stress. And you do something pretty interesting. You sing. Tell I me did. about that. How'd you get into that? Oh, yeah. So singing for me, big component of my life. I grew up in a very musical family. A father big into music, a mom who wishes she could sing. <laughs> You're tone deaf, <laughs> but uh, she loves it nonetheless. My father was a family practice doc, but he also was an Elvis impersonator. And Elvis, he was one of the top Elvis impersonators in the world. And he, he always called it my golf. <laughs> and all of his colleagues would be playing golf and he'd be doing big shows with hundreds or thousands of people for charity and people would come to these shows and feel like not only did they see the real Elvis but they literally felt it and people who had arthritis and could barely walk were up dancing in the front and with no pain and I saw that healing power of music growing up and you know my father was a drummer for 49 years before he passed away and having the drumming component having he was a singer unbelievable and that got me into music growing up. So the Elvises, the Michael Jacksons, the Marvin Gaye's, a lot of the old school stuff, the soul stuff, I really gravitate toward. And then I went through a period where I was very shy and I would, you know, shower singer, like probably many of you. And I just completely would hide what I had inside of me to give. And eventually the confidence started to build. Now, again, it doesn't start that way. I was terrified the first time I did it, but I was like, it'll be worth it. And I did it, and I probably messed up, but I did it. And then the next time it was even easier, then even easier. Then fast forward, and we, you know, me, I have a band, and we're doing talent shows with hundreds of people in the audience. And it's just, you know, I live for that because the joy you bring to people and the joy that I have doing it, you know, it's unmatched. That's great. I didn't know that about your dad. That's so cool. <laughs> um, Something else I know you enjoy is reading. And we're sitting here at your place right now. And as we've done many times over the past four years in, in medical school, and I, I remember coming here, you had one little shelf. There it is over there. And then now you have this other tall shelf. It's about six feet high. And the coffee table has a shelf underneath it. And we're here four years later, and it is wall-to-wall -wall 
books. Yeah, my apartment's in my library. <laughs> it is It is absolutely a very impressive library. And you could probably put a few more shelves in here and, and, <laughs> yeah. and fill those with, uh, you know, with the overflow. But you were talking about when you were a child and you were sick and you went on YouTube and uh, got motivated and you're very passionate and read a lot of books. What's the power in that for you? I feel like there's that old expression, knowledge is power. And I think that it's not exactly true because knowledge is potential power. If you don't apply the knowledge, it's kind of useless. It just stays as a thought, as an idea. And there's an old, I remember hearing this quote a long time ago, learn from the mistakes of others because you'll never live long enough to make them all yourself. <laughs> and I started reading, as you said, you know, as much as I possibly could. In the beginning, it was all just about health. And I started seeing all these, you know, something as simple as dietary changes that were having profound effects on patients. They were undoing the diabetes and the heart disease and the blood, high blood pressures. But coming from a family of docs, I'm sitting there thinking, why aren't they doing this? How come they're not getting these kind of results of their patients? And I realized, well, they weren't, they didn't learn that kind of stuff. And then I started wondering, well, what else is out there? So I started picking up books on relationships, books on business, books on just success principles overall. And all of a sudden, the library would grow and grow and grow. And it became, it got to a point that I would read a book, I'd learn the essence of that book, and then I'd find that essence coming through with my patients, with my coaching clients. And all of a sudden, I'm like, wow, that book is the reason why I was able to stop that divorce from happening with that client. That book is the reason why I was able to help my friend quit smoking. And all of a sudden, there was so much value there for me that this six, eight, ten dollar book was able to potentially add years to somebody's life. So now the way I look at reading is not just for me. I'm reading everything that I read so that I'm prepared for So when that person comes in my life at some point and I know they're on their way, <laughs> I'll be ready to help them out. So what do you read right now? Uh, right now, looking at the table, I've got a little bit of everything. Any, any one of these dozen books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I no. a, yeah, the coffee table starting to bend under the pressure on the bottom. But I got uh, some it books. Really is. <laughs> got some business books, the uh, new book, Principles by Ray Dalio, the Unshakable book by Tony Robbins, Crushing It, Gary Vaynerchuk. But then got some spiritual books, the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, a book by Anthony DeMello called The Way to Love, which I can't recommend highly enough. And then books on seminars, books on coaching, things that are really gearing me towards what I want to do. Great. Was there any particular book that, that really influenced you or that really got you going in the direction that you are right now? I'd say the, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily, I wouldn't necessarily say a book, but I'd say the original, original person who got me going was uh, Tony Robbins. And I feel that he was one of the first people that I started following when I was about 14 years old. And just seeing how quickly this man was able to shift a belief, to shift a state of mind, to get somebody out of these unresourceful states that they're in and get into a place where they can make real lasting and meaningful change and how quickly he was able to do it, where he could have one session with somebody that was 30 minutes long and get results that a psychiatrist working with them for 10 years hadn't gotten yet. And when I see something like that, it's like, all right, how did he do that? And then I learned, oh, he read like 800 books. You know, <laughs> Oh, he attended all these conferences. Oh, he had mentors. He trial and error. He worked with people. So I was like, all right, I got to start putting in that work because I want to do something similar. 
And that's what it's going to take. So he was one of the originals. Yeah. So are there any particular books that you would recommend? Actually, yes. Uh, I got a couple of books on my, in my mind that I feel are directly related to what we're talking about and would really give people immense value. And they're quick reads. I'll make sure that I don't pick anything that's a thousand pages. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great. So the first one that I'm thinking of is this book that I found it in this small bookshop and it's called Rules for a Night by Ethan Hawke. The actor. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I didn't know he wrote a book either. And I, I pick it up and I'm flipping through it and it was just so phenomenal. I'm like, I need to buy this. And essentially the idea behind the book is his grandmother was getting close to dying and the whole family went to her house after she passed away they were looking through the attic and in the attic they found these scrolls which were passed down throughout the ages in their family and the story is that these scrolls were written by his great 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 you know times eight or something grandfather who was a knight and in this book he essentially outlines to his children I'm going to go off to this battle. I don't know if I'm going to make it back. And you're very, you're both very young. So I haven't had the chance to really impart to you like the wisdom that I've learned in, in my life. And so he essentially goes through, I think it's like 20 chapters, but this book is very short. You can read it in a day. And it's just such a pr amazing book for not only you, your kids, your family. It inspires you how to be the best you. So that's one book that I think is unbelievable. It's probably a book you haven't heard of. Again, Rules for a Night. That's fantastic. With a K, with a night. Another one is uh, The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. This book's a little more common. A lot of people have heard of it. It's an unbelievable book. I've read it multiple times, and I can't recommend this one highly enough. Very simple, straightforward. Again, you can read it in a day. Four tips from Don Miguel Ruiz. He's a Toltec shaman from Mexico. And he calls it a personal guide to personal freedom, a practical guide to personal freedom. And to me, it's like the four agreements that he gives, I've mentioned some of them in our talk today, are just rules for a better life. You live these, and that stress that we're talking about starts to literally melt away. One of my favorites that's been one of the most impactful in my life is called As a Man Thinketh by James Allen. I mentioned that quote earlier in the talk. I have probably read this book and heard the audio version 10 to 20 times. And this book, the audio book is only 54 minutes. You could hear this on a plane ride multiple times if you're doing a commute. It's literally the guide, like the Bible of this is how you got to think. You think this way, stress becomes a thing of the past. You think this way, you take power back in your life. And it ultimately gets you to the point where by taking that responsibility for where you are, you can actually get to where you want to be. And, the and, and by the way, I don't mean to interrupt your flow here, but you know we're sitting among all of Jamil's books. He, he has grabbed these books uh, off, off the shelf. He's reached over and grabbed these off the shelf. He's, oh, these are my favorites. So uh, they're, they're, they have a prominent place here. Exactly. Yeah, I wanted to make sure I picked some books that I think would be not only relatable and easily accessible, but books that would really help people where they're at right now, no matter where they're at. Great. And the last one that I recommend is called The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. This book, people, if they've been in bookshops in the last few years, they've likely seen it. New York Times bestseller. Unbelievable book. It, in a sense, it's, think of it more of a spiritual book, and it's going to take you on a journey in yourself and remind you not only who you are, but that you're capable of so much more. 
and that it'll push you to live that life that you're so capable of living. I think starting with these four will dramatically change the way you think to the point where those things that happen at work that are bothering you aren't going to bother you anymore. Those things that are happening at home in your personal relationships, you're going to find a way to deal with those. And uh, I hope that they change your life how they change mine. It's almost like to teach, you have to be a lifelong learner. Exactly. A lot of people have this idea that once they finish school, the learning stops. I've, I've heard a statistic that, you know, I'm not sure how true it is, but I've heard this idea that the average American might read one book a year. And even that book they read, they likely don't get past the first or second chapter. And to me, these people have this, and it's not a judgment. It's more a matter of if that makes you happy. Some people don't like to read. That's completely cool. If you don't like to read, maybe you like video. Maybe you like just going out and speaking to people who are doing it and just learning from them. But you're learning in some context. But if you're not happy where you're at, but you're also not willing to change, you're going to keep getting the results you're getting. You have to be willing to branch out there to learn new things so you can expand your game and take on more. I have one question I ask on every show, and Jamil, how can people outlive their cubicle? Well, I think that the way I'd like to tackle that one is arguably you know, the best piece of advice I've ever received and the best piece that I could give to everyone listening. And it really comes down to that simple notion I mentioned in the beginning of this podcast about fulfillment. You need to look inside yourself and figure out what it is that just lights you up. What is it that turns you on about whatever it is you're interested in? And are you doing it either at work or if you're not doing it at work, are you doing it on your own time? Are you, are you having some hobbies? Are you putting yourself out there to give yourself that creativity, to give yourself that passionate love of whatever it is you're doing? Because I promise you guys that whether it's your relationship, whether it's your business, whether it's your job, Whatever it is, if you allow, there's that old expression, don't die with your music still in you. And far too often people get to the end of their life and they look back and they just realize, I messed up. If I could have just talked to my boss about that, if I could have just started that business on the side, if I could have just told that person how I really felt about them, my life might have been completely different. And when you're 90, 100 years old, there was a study done on um, hospice patients and they were nearing the end of their life and they said, what are your biggest regrets? And they said, I didn't tell the people that I loved how much I loved them. I didn't listen to myself when I said, this is what I really want to do. I listened to the people telling me I can't do that, that I wasn't good enough, that I didn't chase my passions that I worked too much. <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I worked too much and I didn't spend enough time with my friends, my family, the people that I care about the most doing the things that I care about the most. And I find that most people have this live for Friday mentality where it's Monday to Thursday suck. And then Friday finally comes around and it's the greatest thing in the world. Cause now I don't have to go to work. But then before you know it, it's Sunday again, then you have to repeat the process. Now, keep in mind, you can stay in the job and have this unbelievable mentality as well. But it stems from, first of all, what are you doing outside of the job? What are you doing to satiate that hunger, that passion, that curiosity, that playfulness? Because you've got that spirit in you that needs that outlet. You know, maybe you like to be physical. You want to go on a hike. You want to go work out. Are you doing that? 
maybe you want to be creative. You want to go draw. You want to paint. You want to be an artist in that regard. You want to play some music. You want to sing. We talked about yep. that. Are you doing that? Are you having fun outside of your life? And then when you get to work, what are you contributing to? Do you feel like you're just there monotonously doing a job that doesn't matter? Because if you're doing that, you're not going to be inspired when you go to work. Understand the role that you play. Understand how whatever you're doing is adding to your company, your corporation, whatever it is, how the work you do matters. And I feel that that tapping into that coupled with what you do on your own time, it's just a recipe for success, for lasting happiness. You recently wrote an ebook. Tell yeah. me about that. Yeah, so I wrote an ebook. I called it 20 Steps to Your Next Breakthrough. And essentially what I did was I took a bunch of uh, blog posts that I, w that I wrote over the year and I decided I'm going to add to this and I'm going to add exercises. I'm going to add things that are very practical, very tangible, but I'm also going to make it short because, you know, people are busy. And you know, I made this ebook. It's probably about 70 pages. Each chapter is two, three pages max. But each chapter has things in it that you can do right now to ultimately change the state you're in, change your perspective, and really just give that value. So I give that away for free. And uh, I've gotten a lot of great feedback from it. So What's an example of something in the book that would lead to a breakthrough? So I know one of my favorite chapters in the book is The Secret to Living is Giving. And in that chapter, I won't spoil anything. There's some cool stuff in there. But in that chapter, I hit on multiple examples in my own personal experience as well as things that I've heard that completely changed the game for me. Experiences that I had by serving somebody else, by living for something greater than myself, how that just dramatically shifted my perspective, how I, I changed from stress to gratitude. And just that step, it sounds massive, that leap from stress to gratitude, but just by shifting into how can I serve opposed to what's in this for me, it's an unbelievable change that leads to massive results very quickly. Anyone who's ever helped somebody, and we all have, but anyone who's ever helped somebody intentionally and saw the aftermath of that person now being at more peace, that person, maybe you volunteered at a, a shelter and now that person's got some food. Maybe you, someone's going through a hard time in your life and they need that shoulder to cry on. They need someone to talk to and you held that space for them and all of a sudden they feel so much better. Now all you did was sit there and listen maybe, but to them what you did was so much more than that. And just having that experience, being able to give that gift, but also being able to receive that gift. And I think one of the great things I saw when I was going through the book, it's not just about people reading the book. There are really concrete, actually very quick action steps that people can take. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of, for example, I'll, I'll, I can give one right now if that's okay. So one, for example, would be, I like to think of the idea of this. Imagine something that you want to do and really think about that. Now, what most people do is they think, oh, you know, I want to do, I want to write that book. Okay. And then it gets put off and it never happens. Well, what you could do is you could say, well, I want to write that book. But then the next thing you write down is, what could stop me from writing that book? What might come up that would delay the process? And then you write those things down. And then the next thing you write is, okay, if those things happened, how would I respond to that? How would I make it happen anyway? And to me, when you can write down all the things in your life that you'd like to do, and then you, and you follow it up again with what could stop that from happening, followed by how would I deal with it and make it work anyway, all of a sudden that thing that 
wasn't part of the plan becomes ironically part of the plan. And so now if and when that thing that stops you happens, you saw it coming. And by seeing it coming, you're able to respond and you're able to get that thing anyway. So what are some practical things that you've seen that could help people relieve their stress? Yeah, so I know I've definitely dabbled in so many of them because to me, if I'm going to recommend it, I want to try it at least myself. You know, meditation, I'm very big into meditation. Journaling, massively, because journaling is so crucial because it allows you to get your thoughts on paper out of your head. And maybe there's something that you want to tell somebody that if you know, if I said this, the way I plan on saying it, that's the key part. If I say this the way that I want to say it right now, it's not going to go well. But if I can get it out there into that book, knowing no one else is going to read this except for me, that is a simple and effective way to stop that mental chatter and stop that, um, that stress component there. And then coupling, coupled with the meditation is breathing. You know, it's the simplest thing that we do every single day, without, usually without even thinking about it. But I'd argue that oftentimes we're breathing the wrong way. <laughs> What's the right way? So oftentimes we breathe in through our chest. And what I mean by that is think of it like if you took your hand and put it on t in, right in between the breastbone, that's what's moving when you're breathing, if you're most people. Now, what's not moving is if you put your hand on your belly button, that's not moving as much. There's not a lot of action going on down there. <laughs> that's what we call diaphragmatic breathing. Some people call it belly breathing. Now, the thing is that the way the body works is something called the vagus nerve. And just think of it like you have your parasympathetic nervous system, which is that rest and digest. This is where you're in. This is the state you're in when you're relaxed. When you breathe deeply and your belly moves, you activate that nerve and you force your body to go into that state. So one simple exercise that I can teach right now, if that's okay, sure. Dan? Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, something that people can do at their desk whenever they have a few moments. It will dramatically ground you take you out of your head, put, your, put yourself into your body, and decrease your stress. So the first thing is going back to that belly breathing. How do we make it so you can do that? First thing, I want you to put your hand on your belly button, your left hand, All right. and then you put your right hand on your chest. And then I want you to look down, and I want you to just breathe normally. And I want you to ask yourself, which hand is moving more? Now, if you're most people, it's the top hand that's moving more. Now, we want to reverse this. So what we're going to do is first, just so you know what it feels like, I want you to push in slightly with your lower hand into your belly, and then using just your muscles, I want you to push your hand out. And then repeat that process a couple times just so you understand what that feels like. And then looking down again with the hand on the belly with a slight pressure pushing in, I want you to breathe in through your nose slowly and deeply with the intention of pushing this hand out. And if sitting down, this is too difficult, when you're home, you can try it laying down. It becomes easier, so then when you, when you are sitting, it's easier to do. Now that's the setup. Once you know, all right, I'm breathing from my belly now, this is where I need to be, just take a deep breath in, and as you breathe in through your nose, slowly and deeply, making sure you're pushing your belly out, just think the word in. Real simple, but say it long, in something like that and then breathe out and just say the word out wherever your thoughts are whatever you're thinking about all those racing things the to-do list just focus on in and out and how long is a good breath I'd say about four seconds in and then I typically like to hold it 
for two to four seconds and then let it go for about four seconds. Okay, so take me through that again. Okay, so we're gonna do four seconds in. One, two, three, four, hold it, and out. One, two, three, four. When you, this is you know, a very simple way of doing this exercise. It can always be made more complicated, but I figured at least as an entry point into this practice, most people just breathing that way. I've taught this to clients and patients and I've gotten responses back of, wow, this feels uncomfortable just breathing through their diaphragm, their belly, because they're so not used to it. When you can breathe this way, and the hand is only there initially to make sure that you get it right, that the form, the technique is there. Once you get used to it, you don't need your hand on yourself anymore, and you'll notice you'll start breathing this way all the time. And when you breathe this way all the time, not necessarily the holding part, but the breathing from the diaphragm, that's going to also dramatically help to keep you in that relaxed state. It's funny, I, I was breathing along with you while you were demonstrating, and that first breath, I could, I'm like, okay, I'm going to go out, and I could feel my chest being the one breathing in and breathing out, but as I got to the second and the third breath, you know, it was coming from the belly. It's a very easy exercise, and it, it uh, has very immediate effects. Yeah, and you can couple that with closing your eyes. Maybe you put headphones in and you've got some type of relaxing music that you like. If you're home, maybe you want a candle, something to just make that mood right for you. But again, if you're at work, you have two minutes. You can do a quick two-minute audio on your phone, close your eyes, and go into another world. Thank you for sharing that. Of course. Jamil, it's been great having you on the show. Uh, where can people find you? Thanks, Dan. Right now, my, my main focus is on my current website, jamilsayage.com. That's J-A-M-I-L-S-A-Y-E-G-H. And, and on my Instagram uh, with my name, The Life Doc. And so on the website, you're going to find tons of free information, blog posts, videos. And you can also sign up for a free Transformation Starts Today strategy session where we can get you from where you're at right now get you crystal clear on where you want to be, and get you really understanding what's preventing that, what's stopping you from getting that. Thanks again for having me here, and thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Dan, so much. You've just consumed another episode of Outlive Your Cubicle. You can find us on the web at cubicleclinic.com, at Cubicle Clinic on Facebook and Instagram. On Twitter, you can find me, Dan Wool. That's at Dan Wool, D-A-N-W-O-O-L. If you like this episode, do us a favor, please. Review it on Stitcher, iTunes, or wherever you're listening. It's been a production of Cubicle Clinic LLC and Cubicle Clinic Media. Voiceover intro by DJ Dave Bernstein. Graphics by Brennan's Design. Until next time, eat well, play loud, and outlive your cubicle. Thanks for listening.